Hello and welcome back to another episode of At Least It's Not Rocket Science. This is episode eight. My name is Nathaniel and I am your host. And my co-host is... I am JJ. I am the other co-host. And I am joined by my other co-host... Kyle. And here I am. <laughs> Hopefully we sound a little bit more crisp today. Because uh, we're actually filming... Filming, quote unquote. There's no cameras anywhere nearby. Uh, we're actually filming the podcast today in the Student Experience Center here on campus. So shout out to the Student Experience Center and KBVR. And also shout out to Megan, who has been a, a great big help in making sure this podcast stays on track and that, uh, you know, we can get it out to the people listening. So thank you. Thank you, Megan. Yep. Thank you. So, you know, today, this week specifically, we have some good news. Uh, I, I believe we may have mentioned... Perhaps we mentioned it, if not in the podcast with Fisher last week, which you should go listen to. It's our interview with the team captain of SBC UAV. I recommend you go take a listen to it. It's very interesting. But if we didn't mention it, we actually had a presentation with NASA uh, last week, last Friday. Sorry, I'm glaring at Kyle for knocking something over <laughs> on the table. Uh, we, we had a presentation with NASA last week uh, for our critical design review for our document. After writing it, we got to present it to NASA and uh, thankfully, everything went great, right? The general consensus was that they had a few questions that we answered, but overall, NASA very much, um, they thought we did a good job. After our first failure of a flight, and then learning from it, and then our second one that succeeded, it seems like uh, we have the go-ahead to go for the FRR. But the biggest news that came out of that, in my opinion, would be that NASA actually loves the podcast. So apparently, uh, we're pretty unique when it comes to doing a STEM engagement in this regard, and not even STEM engagement for the, you know, for USLI's sake, but just having a podcast like this from a USLI team and just discussing AIAA in general. Apparently, that they they love the idea. So and we hope that all you listeners love it as well, and are at least learning something while yeah. you're hearing us. That's the goal of all this: is to make sure that we all learn a little something here or there, right? Yeah, I learn new things all the time. <laughs> yeah, I, I learned, you know, how to run a podcast studio for reference. <laughs> I learned how to run podcasting equipment that I've never seen before because it's way more advanced than the stuff that I have. So really cool. <laughs> but yeah, it, it's it looks like a Star Trek room in here. Maybe maybe compared that's, to the dungeon. Yeah, compared to our dungeon, which is just foam walls and uh, you know a computer with a few microphones attached to it. There's actually AC in here. It's really great. <laughs> and we're on the fourth floor, yeah, so we have a view. We have a view. We yeah, have an on-air sign. It's uh, it's pretty fancy stuff going on in here. It's not. It's nice. Did you ever? Did you? Did you sign us in on the? By I the did. Way? I did. Epic. Um, but yeah, it's uh, the the upcoming plan is our uh, flight readiness review for USLI, and we actually we're going to talk a little bit about our trip down to uh, Huntsville, Alabama, too. So, coming up. After the FRR, after things go all according to plan. After we test our full skill as well as our full payload, the next step is going down to Huntsville and competing. Competing. And winning. What was that? And winning. And winning, of course. Bring home the gold. You know, I won't say what the tattoo says, but I remember as team captain, I promised the team if we win, I would tattoo <laughs> a certain thing on my body. Do you Do you guys remember what it is? I do. <laughs> Do not. It uh, it's something I say quite often. 
Oh, I, I remember now, yeah. <laughs> the, the famous quote. Famous quote, yeah, from me. You might have to edit that out. <laughs> no, it's fine. It'll probably be on the rocket, but you have to look for it. Yeah, you have to. I mean, there might be several quotes on the rocket, so. But I won't say because you got to come. Well, you can't come to launch, but you got to follow uh, the OSU AIAA Instagram page and you might get some updates about it. Or the USLI Instagram page as well. Oh, yeah. Both I, of them. I always forget that I run that. <laughs> Same with the Twitter. <laughs> yes. Actually, all of us here have control of one of the, the accounts for the STEM engagement for USLI, as I, we are a STEM engagement. Well, I do the team. LinkedIn, but there's not much, I, not much fun stuff I can do for the LinkedIn. That's true. Professional stuff. This is this is more STEM engagement in mm-hmm. regards to that, but yeah. So Huntsville, Alabama. So Nathaniel, how long of a drive is it? It's uh thirty four hours, but De- if we're looking at mileage, two thousand three hundred six miles. And that's depending on traffic too, right? Yep. And the funny thing is, is NASA was impressed of our ten hour drive to Stockton, which is five hundred sixty something miles. So I wonder what they're gonna think about for this thirty four hour drive we're gonna do. Hopefully, uh, yeah, I was going to say it was a very it was kind of nice to hear that uh, they they knew how dedicated uh, to USLI we were because of that long drive down to Stockton. They even notified us that most teams, you know, they'll they think that even like a two hour drive is long. And we were all thinking at the same time that it is three hours to the nearest launch site (laughs) from us. So we have to drive three hours like no matter what to get a launch like that. So it felt good. It felt good to have that kind of like, yeah. We're Oregon State, baby. Oregon State, baby. <laughs> Let's go. Yeah, go Beavs. But other good news about the uh, podcasts and things. What did the lady mention? Oh, Allison? Yeah. Allison, Allison, Miss Allison. Ah, uh, yes. Allison mentioned, and again, uh, the, this is all the NASA USI management team from uh, Marshall Space Flight Center. So if you're listening... Uh, thank you so much from OSU USLI because you've helped uh, inspire us even more to keep keep carrying through with this podcast. And what Allison and uh, Zach mentioned was that uh, we should submit all of the analytics for the podcast and send them into NASA and basically like show them that we're doing this. And she said that that might lead up to certain interviews with congressmen, senators, like... Uh, or even inter-NASA personnel. Yeah, high na- high-end NASA personnel and... Uh, potentially a rocket launch as well. And potentially getting invited to a rocket launch, which would be very... Uh, it, would, it would blow my mind, certainly. I feel like all of us would be very, very heartstruck at that. Very thankful, too, yeah. for this opportunity. Because, you know, we, we did this for... We, okay... So, like, the USLI aspect, we, we figured we couldn't count this for, like, our STEM engagement, like, our hands-on. And we we're, we aren't, but we continue to do this because we enjoy it, and it kind of, you know, it's kind of a nice cool-down from what we're normally used to. We get to spread knowledge. We get to talk to cool people. You know, we have a, a, a interview upcoming next week with the Mad West, the Mad W team for AIAA. And then after that, I believe we're going to be interviewing the last Rocket team, no, we have APOP and oh, then the last rocket A-pop, team. APOP and then we're also going to have the last rocket team. And then after that, hopefully we get into some faculty here or uh, we might interview our mentor. Yes. Yeah, speaking of that, so we've discussed a little bit about Alabama and our drive down and all that. 
And we have a few stops along the way we won't necessarily give away yet because we need to figure that out. <laughs> but uh, talking about our mentor, uh, Gary Leach. Now, Gary has been helping us. He's been helping out several of the USLI teams for years now here at OSU. And uh, he's been helping us out quite a bit. So Gary, he also started recently listening to the podcast we learned. So shout out to you, Gary. Thank you so much. Thank you for all you do, Gary. We really appreciate you. Um, Gary is an L3 which means that he has the level three certification for rocketry, which is the highest one you can get in the amateur rocketry category. It's, it's so crazy to think about too, because like L1 rockets, you don't need like a test, right? It's just like you build the rocket, you launch it. L2, you need to do a test. And I think that, I don't know if it's required, but I think you might need a tracker. You're, you're so getting your L2 I soon. I am getting my so. L2. Um, from what I've been seeing is you just need to take a test and you're going to have a bigger motor. And you deploy just like an L1, or you can do a dual deploy, which is recommended because, you know, bigger motor, you go higher, bigger recovery radius. If you do a dual deployment method, you have that drogue, so that way you don't drift as much. When your main comes out, you'll be closer to the launch pad. But you can do it with uh, just one main shoot. So what's your plan? Are you going to do dual deployment? Uh, I'm thinking about buying a Jolly Logic. And the doing a dual logic. deployment, because uh, if I try to do a dual separation, I'm going to need a flight computer in order to have that second pyro channel going on, aside from the motor pyro. Yeah, the the Jolly Logic, because I got a I get hands on experience with it when we launched that second subscale. Jolly Logic is cool stuff. It's a uh, very handy. So uh, it's a it, nice little plug and play. It is. <laughs> so if you need an L, if you need a test for L two and other stuff for your L3. I'm like curious, like, do you need to be put on like a list of people like that are like, I wonder how many people in the U S are L3 certified. Well, the thing with L3 is just, it costs so much. Yeah. Cause now with L2, I mean, motors can get up to like the five, $200 range. Mm -hmm. L3, we're looking more of like 500 plus in motors, motor hardware, Body frames. I mean, I've seen body frames online. Cheapest one's like $389. Ooh, I'll stick so. with my L1 for now. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> and and this, this is just like the structures aspect, the propulsion aspect. Think about the recovery harness, the flight computers. It's it's a, it's a big money, hefty, money thing. Hefty yeah. chunk of change. Ooh. Yeah. So we applaud Gary for getting that. He's been doing rocketry for years. I actually presented recently with him to the um, ALL. Uh, I'm trying to remember... It's the adult life learners. Let me look. Let me make sure I don't butcher that. They're not sponsoring us or anything like that, but uh, it was just nice to be able to, to talk to them and present about USLI, and it was a very nice experience. Let me find... Is it the Academy for Lifelong Learning? That is it. ALL, click on that. Now, now I can make the thing. Yes, Academy for Lifelong Learning. I can make Nathaniel Google things for me now. <laughs> so, but yeah, yes, it was very nice. And uh, getting to talk to them about the project and getting to hear about uh, Gary's stories from Rocketry and telling people that, you know, all you got to do is try. It was nice. I think that's one of the fun things about being on STEM engagement and going out. Like, for example, the Boy Scouts. Yeah, when the we Boy went Scouts out to the was Boy cool. Scouts and we just showed them the Rocketry stuff and how open rocket works and how the our little L1 separate and all this and that like it's it's pretty it's fun to pass down the knowledge yeah it was uh it, it's very it's so interesting cuz like you know 
all these little kids, like they're launching like the little bottle rockets and they think that the rockets that we're launching are like just a little bit bigger. <laughs> and then we show them like my L1, which is, you know, taller than all of them. It, yeah, it also helped that we gave them candy. <laughs> so I think that helped our, helped our cause a little bit. But all of them were interested with that presentation about the the goop. Yes, the the original goop, the gravity uh, operated uh, orb payload. And you know that actually brings up another thing that Allison mentioned in our presentation, which is uh, that she loved the logo because it it looks like a certain Star Wars character from the new movies, uh, BB-8. It looks like a little uh, a little rolling drone, and that's kind of what it's designed to be almost. So the Weeble Wobble instead? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so on our mission patch, on our current mission patch, uh, there's, it looks, it's like a little planet with a ring around it, and uh, they loved it apparently. So that was good. And they liked our our Oregon logo and all that, all the eight stars representing us. It was nice to hear from that end because, like, none of us are very artistic, right? (laughs) I mean, you could consider podcasting art and, like, the, the, the ability to, like, talk about all the stuff that we do. But uh, it was certainly nice to hear from from them about that, you know. They liked our podcast logo, too, didn't they? Yes, the podcast logo. It was funny, too, because I remember when we first started doing this with KBVR, um, they were worried that uh, it was too close to the NASA logo. Yeah, and then we had to redo the logo. And I remember redoing it, and I was and like, We just used it. beaver orange. Yeah, the beaver orange, <laughs> and then I added the beaver logo in Which the middle. is a color, by the way, beaver orange. I don't remember the hex, the hex code for it. Really? Yeah. Huh. Hang on, Nathaniel's going to Google it. <laughs> but going back to the, the Boy Scout stuff and all those STEM engagement opportunities, I was really kind of bummed that I missed out on that. I was either working on other stuff or working, working at my job. I hope that we can end up doing something with OMSI. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, we could talk about that too. Because since it, so I'm leading the STEM engagement team which I don't know really why because there's no really lead for it. I'm already team captain. I don't think I need to take that on as well. <laughs> but it's like we have the podcast and then like everyone – we did robotics with uh, elementary school students and like we're trying to figure out something with the Evergreen Aviation, which they never got back to you, right? No, not yet. And so we're working on that and that's in McMinnville. But also I think that you and I talked and we said that we should reach out to OMSI maybe to see if... uh... I heard back from the events coordinator and they have nothing space-related anytime soon. Mm -hmm. Nothing before our April launch. Mm -hmm. But I told her, or I asked her, I didn't tell her. I asked her if she can keep an eye out for any other space things that are coming up in March or April time frame. Mm Because when I was communicating uh, through email with her... Uh, everything was just in January, February. So that was how, how far they're planning ahead for our kind of yeah. scale. Yeah, because our, our STEM engagement is due at the FRR. Mm-hmm. So we, uh, I think we only need to get, I think we have 169 right now, so we need to be able to get... About 40. Well, we need 250, so oh. 81 more people. And... I'm trying to think what we could do for that. I mean, we'll talk off air about it too, um, can, uh, but we're close. I've been meaning to try to get back to her now that you know more time has gone. It's been like three weeks since I've been talking to her, and uh, I hope that if they have some sort of space-related exhibit coming up t- soon, because if, if you didn't know, uh, OMSI has rotating 
exhibits all the time. Do you know the acronym for OMSI? I used to. I forgot about it. I actually went. Oregon Museum of Science and Industry. Yeah, I I was actually, I went actually went up there to like bebop around. Um, OMSI's cool. Figure out it really. It really is. It's in uh, Portland for those of you that haven't been. I highly recommend going. I I will say though, the exit to OMSI on the freeway is not the best. (laughs) No, that's just that's just the Portland exits in general though. That's, That's true. But still, specifically the OMSI one, it's always backed up. But I went yeah. to go see the submarine, and I went to go do the oh yeah other the submarine special exhibit. They had like a bug exhibit when I went. That was really fun. Um, the submarine was used in the Hunt for Red October, the movie. Yeah, I saw that. Very that interesting. Really cool. um, I took a naval science class, and it was really neat to see all the things that I learned about in class and in practice. We we really should reach out to the Evergreen Aviation Museum again. We should even we should even drive up there at one point. Uh, Albertani's going to do that tour for the AA for eleven class. I thought he usually he said that. I guess we might. It's, it's going to be like a whoever can buy your own ticket go yeah. and like whoever can drive up. I believe that's what he said. We should reach out directly to them though because the I've never been to the Aver, Ever, Evergreen Aviation Museum. Didn't you say they have the SR seventy one there? Yes, they do. They actually have like a so they have a plane exhibit. And then they also have um, a whole space exhibit. Because we, well. I think we've talked about this a little bit on the podcast before. They have the spruce goose and stuff yep. there. So, should we ask Doctor Alwatani if he has like a connection or something? I could tomorrow after class. Because yeah. I'm, I'm going to ask him a couple questions after class as well. Well, I have a couple questions to ask him too about the, <laughs> the fiber layup. Um, oh yeah, I was going to say. Do you want to talk about what we're doing for that? So we are doing our own manufacturing for fiberglass for the fins and for our nose cone, which is really interesting because I'm taking the composite manufacturing course right now. And honestly, it's one of my favorite classes going on right now. I'm trying to convince Nathaniel to jump ship up whatever he's doing and join me. Uh, <laughs> this is true. This is very true. <laughs> no one's trying to do, convince me. So it's like it's interesting composites. I mean, you don't really learn much. Until you take a manufacturing class in composites or the higher level classes. And I mean, other than that, you got YouTube, but. But I'm really excited. I, you know, information dump on composites to like everybody who talks to me about it nowadays. Because I'm like, oh my God, I learned this thing in class. I need to talk to you about it. And you weren't there, JJ. But uh, when Nathaniel and I were talking with, uh, gosh, what was his name? I can't remember. But he was with the GF. GFR. GFR. Mm-hmm. And he was helping us through our kind of composite plan on how we're doing the layups, how many layers or plies that we're doing, uh, what kind of fiberglass we're going to do, all that sort of thing. And it, w- it was just interesting. It was, uh, I got to test my knowledge too a little bit because he had me present some of the information to James and Nathaniel. I'm like, mm-hmm. yeah, spot on. We got some of that fiberglass material and like the re- like the resin that we're putting it in, right? We got some of that in the in the mail finally for. Yeah, we got it all yesterday. So James should be doing the laser cutting for the uh, fin cores today. You should get that the done. Fin- today. Yeah, the fins are going to be done today. Because yeah, fi- well, I was doing is that. Is he doing the layup too? No. Okay, so no. What he's doing is he's doing the core. So he's doing a mill spec wooden core. And then on top of that, we're going to lay fiberglass on top. I see. 
Yeah, I'm I'm not a part of any of that that's going on. I'm just on my my avionics bay vibing out. So it's really <laughs> interesting. I was talking to some of the TAs in my composites manufacturing lab today, and th- we got into some very theoretical manufacturing processes mm-hmm. for the nose cone, not just for the fins. For the fins, we can do the standard wet layups. Um, you can YouTube that. It's really interesting. Uh, but for the nose cone, it's such a weird shape because we're doing it all at once, mm-hmm. right? We're not doing half of one, half of the other, and then bonding it like most aerospace uh, manufacturing companies do. What we're do, what was suggested to me, was something called resin infusion. And what that is, is we're getting the three D printed plug that we're going to. wrap fiberglass around have that in a vacuum bag or a vacuum chamber and we're going to seal it on two ends one is going to have a resin drip which we figured would be on the top and on the other end we're going to have a vacuum where the the vacuum is sucking you know you've lost me (laughs) i've lost you well i've lost i think i lost myself it's it's late I'm grasping we for can, the English language. We can just say that it's complicated. Well, well it's really interesting. Uh, but uh, that whole thing is different from like the fiberglass layups because the fiberglass layups is going to be wet resin. It's like a really fancy, very, very expensive paper mache. Okay. That makes sense from the material that I saw in the lab. But what was suggested to me, this fiber or this, uh, this resin, uh, this extra fancy resin technique, is we're doing a dry wrap around the the plug, the Mm -hmm. 3D printed plug, and then we're going to drip resin from the top and then extract that resin through the entire fiberglass uh, structure. You know, you talking about Albertani, uh, Dr. Albertani reminds me, actually. Um, For those of you that are listening, uh, first off, hopefully, uh, talking about some of the composite stuff we're doing is interesting. But is there, if there is any sort of faculty or individual that is doing, uh, you know, cool stuff with either AIAA, with STEM, with GFR, anything like that, uh, have them reach out to uh, the podcast, reach out to one of our emails, uh, or even reach out to uh, one of the social medias as well. Yeah, one of the social medias, um, because we would love to do more interviews. We have plenty of ideas uh, queued up. But if there's anyone that in in particular you want us to talk to, then uh, we would love to. And be ready for us to pick your brain because we want to learn as well. Yeah, I was going <laughs> to say, you know, this, I would not say, I mean, you hear us talk about nuclear fusion, you know that we're no experts, that we're no smarty pants. But, you know, that's we're all here to learn, right? So we might as well ask as many questions as possible. And we could also do things over the phone as well. We haven't done that yet, but we can we can try it and figure it out. I think we have to do that in the dungeon. I don't know if we can do it here, but I could figure it out maybe. Possibly get it on Skype or something. Perhaps. Maybe. Yeah, maybe yeah, we'll Zoom. figure it out. But yeah, and it's like we're very lucky here on OSU because we have people that have worked, you know, in industry for engineering in general. And it's pretty amazing. Like even hearing our professor, Dr. Albertani, talk about like what he was doing in Italy and like what he was doing like in Florida for when he was working here is pretty is 
pretty amazing, honestly. I need to get a biography of this man. Every once in a while, he'll drop like a bomb of something amazing he did, and then he'll just like peter off onto something else. I'm we, like, Whoa, wait, yeah. hold on, go back to that. We that should awesome. we should interview him uh, if he's ever you know if he ever wants. I'm sure he's very busy, but I think that that would be super interesting getting him on here. Well, he's also the I always forget the executive AIAA faculty advisor, I believe, for OSU or in general for OSU. Yeah, so he's the say. main AIAA faculty advisor for OSU. Yeah, he's a he's a very cool dude, and he's been here just as long, or maybe a little bit less than Squires, Doctor Squires. Yeah, because him and Squires were the ones he did the helicopters and planes, and Squires did more of the rocketry, and that's how AIAA built from ground that's up. How it came together. Yep. Um, it I've I've always wondered too because I remember. We talked briefly, you and I, because unfortunately I never got to meet Dr. Squires. Uh, but we talked briefly that Dr. Squires worked on some pretty high-end NASA projects. Do you think that uh, she ever worked on James Webb? Because James Webb took, like, James Webb started in, like, the early 2000s, I think, like, as, like, a conceptual, like, you know, idea. And then it started, like, trying to build it, cost too much money, you know. Things breaking down. I mean, they originally said it was going to launch in like 2014, and then, and then before they push that, it back. yeah, and yeah. they <laughs> pushed it back. But I think the original one they had planned like to launch in like 2002 or something like that, and so they keep pushing it out. So I'm curious if Doctor Squires uh, ever did. You know, maybe I'm not. I'm not 100 certain, but it's a possibility. It's possible, right? I mean, and then speaking of James Webb, we were reading something earlier about it, right? Yeah, there's something I was doing, like some Google searching, and it said something about uh, having its second technical glitch. Technical glitch, or did it get hit by another micrometeoroid? Um, I will find that. James Webb's telescope instrument knocked offline. What? The N-I-R-I-S-S. Whatever that is. Why don't we look that up, then? Again, we're learning here, people. Um, <laughs> the James Webb is super interesting, though, because... It has the, I think that recently it actually took like one of the first like direct infrared photos of an exoplanet in, so, in a galaxy. The so, N-I-R-I-S-S, field of view, and instruments field of view is the amount of sky that it can observe at any given point in time. So I'm ignorant here. I know Webb's is a telescope, right? Yeah. Okay. Uh, you guys are much more informed on... What's going on around here? I only recently have gotten into the aerospace world, and I've been too busy to fully integrate, I mm -hmm. suppose. Uh, for me and anyone who's listening who isn't in the know, can you start at the beginning, please? Well, I'm so glad you asked. So, <laughs> Galileo. <laughs> no, right. so the so we'll start at the Hubble. So, again, I, I don't remember the exact time frame. I think in the mid-70s when the shuttle program was at like its peak, um, they launched up the Hubble Space Telescope, which was a telescope essentially that sits outside of the atmosphere of Earth, so you don't have to worry about at atmospheric distortion, and you can take pictures of, you know, the sky around the Earth, and that way you get, like, the, these super clear photos. I mean, everyone has seen a Hubble photo. That, yeah, that, like, you know, the Hubble, I know. Yeah. The, the web, I'm less I'm getting there, don't worry. <laughs> and so, like, the Hubble had issues where, you know, they they cut the mirror wrong because it's, it's a visual, it's a visible light telescope. They cut a mirror wrong or, or they cut a lens wrong and they had to go up and fix it again because the images that came out first were blurry. 
Mm-hmm. And it was something like a few microns probably caused it. And, you know, a couple couple bill to go back up there, you know, <laughs> spending some of that cash, cash money. And so, you know, they went up and they fixed the Hubble. And the Hubble, like, is still up there taking pictures to this day. And it was such a resounding success. They greenlit another one immediately, which was another observatory that would go up there. And I believe that one was Webb. It started off under a different name, which I'm not going to make Nathaniel look up right now because he's he's analyzing something else. But, excuse me. What was um, it? The, the original James Webb telescope. Just do JWST precursor, but I'll keep talking. Um, so the JWST, James Webb Space Telescope, originally wasn't called that. It's named after, I think, one of the NASA, like, uh, one of, like, the big NASA. Oh, yeah, just click on the Wikipedia article. Wikipedia, it's a good, good source, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> boys and girls, everyone. Can't cite it, though. Can't cite it. Just cite the sources that Wikipedia does. That's an engineering trip. <laughs> um, so the James Webb te- Space Telescope eventually, you know, skip forward to last year, or no, two years ago now, 2021, when it finally launched after getting delayed, like, super, super, super long amount of time. Uh, it's huge. You know, the telescope, like, expands out. To, I think it's, like, nine-foot mirror or something like that. And it, it's all, like, gold-plated something. But... Instead of visible light telescope, it's infrared. And so, and we have like the Chandra X ray observatory as well, which takes like the X ray wavelength. Because mm-hmm. if I were to get more in depth, basically there's, there's radio waves and then there is uh, microwaves and then I think it's infrared, visible light, uh, ultraviolet light, and then halfway between ultraviolet light, it becomes ionizing. Uh, radiation, or this is like the radiation spectrum, and then you get to X-rays and then gamma rays. And so infrared is on the red-colored side, and so it's like a little bit below your visible light spectrum on the red end. And so essentially it allows them to take photos of things in the sky that are like through like clouds, like big dust clouds and all that. And the cool thing about the James Webb Space Telescope is that rather than sitting in orbit around the Earth, it sits in orbit around the sun. And so while that is super unique and it keeps it from being an issue with like, because you have to, as the Hubble, you know, goes around the earth, you know, you're not always in the best position to take photos of mm-hmm. something you want to. That's not really an issue with the James Webb. You can kind of take photos or whatever you want. It's actually sitting at a Lagrange point in orbit around the sun. I think it's L2 or L5. Mm. Basically, a Lagrange point is like where there's like a, a gravitational equilibrium around the earth and the sun. And so essentially you sit something there and it will stay there in between the orbits. It, it'll basically always sit there. Because of the poles from each planet? Yeah. You're, gotcha. you're, you're pinning it in three-dimensional space, if that makes sense. That's pretty cool. In a certain perspective. That's um, really cool. And so it's super unique by that aspect, but it, cre- it carries the other issue with it being so far away from Earth that if anything goes wrong, we can't really fix it. <laughs> um, because <Nope>. the Hubble, <laughs> do another one. the Hubble, literally, like the first thing we had to do was go up and fix it because it had blurry photos. You know, it's like mm-hmm. it had, you know, it had like forty twenty vision. Its pictures were all messed up, and so yeah, the James Webb Space Telescope is infrared telescope. It takes all these amazing pictures. I think most, a lot of them are false color, but it's pretty fascinating seeing them take pictures of like. It also has like a bigger zoom than the Hubble Space Telescope did, considering it's like three or four times the size. Mm-hmm. So it can stare deeper and gather a lot more light, and it stared deeper into space. So there's a famous photo called the uh, the Hubble Deep Field, 
which is it was like the darkest spot in the sky that the Hubble could see. And it zoomed in on it and it took a picture, like a long exposure photo through the telescope. And it showed like these massive, it's just like filled with like a dots. And then you look at all the dots and there's those are all galaxies. And so I think James Webb Space Telescope did the same photo of that same region, and it oh, saw yeah. even more. And it was like super fine, like yeah. you, in the the Hubble picture, it was like really blurry, but yeah. you could like make out that there's these planets and stars. And then the James Webb does it, and you can like, it's like going from 1080 to 4K. Ooh, you like, can see everything. It's amazing. Like, I gotta look these up. I remember you you could like. At first, you're like, oh, you know, it's like a nice picture from the Hubble. And then the James takes it. You're like, I didn't even know that there's this much of the picture that just wasn't appearing mm-hmm. from the difference in quality. The the one that I know is, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but it was like the Pillars of a Creation from the Hubble. Didn't they yeah. do another one with the web? Yeah. And you can yeah. see like way more. That's actually, that's not my background. That was a gorgeous picture. Yeah, you can see like so much, so much more with the the James Webb Space Telescope. I mean, it's still pretty interesting um, seeing it out of the Hubble, but it's amazing seeing it now with like. Isn't it this one? Yeah, so that's the the Hubble Deep Field, and then also it's kind of cool too. Um, oh yeah! If you look at the, I don't, I don't, I can't verify exactly why, but I'm kind of remembering. So because there's like nine sides to that mirror. Mm-hmm. Or there's a certain number of sides to the JWST mirror. One, two, three, four, five, six. It's like because it's a hexagon, you can mm-hmm. see the hexagonal star pattern from the JWST photo. You see how? Yeah, how it's all like how the si- has the six infractions and the Hubble has four. Yeah, that's cool. All right, let's can see. Can you look here. up the uh, the pillars of creation? Yeah, I, I just want to see the contrast. Yeah, I remember seeing something about that ages ago. Yeah, so one's like kind of. Subdued a little, you know, still gorgeous, but then the, yeah. So this is the one that you saw originally. Yeah. And then you see That's, this guy. So yeah, the, the first one you picked is like the one in the standard textbook. Yeah, this is like one is, the Hubble one, awesome. and these are false color too. These uh, visible light ones, and then mm-hmm. you get like these guys where it's like, whoa, it's beautiful. I've actually never even seen this picture. Really? Yeah. Oh, these are part of like the J- the James Webb Space Telescope. Like they, these are like some of the first spots that they took a picture of. Did I get the uh, the name right? What pillars of creation? Yeah. yeah, yeah, they're in the Eagle Nebula. Um, there's also a few other ones that James Webb. There's like, there's there's a whole bunch. Uh, if if you've never thought about like just looking up J James Webb Space Telescope photos, I'd highly recommend it because now that it's been up in space long enough, you get to see like all the crazy photos. And so, they make good wallpapers. And they make <laughs> yeah. I was gonna say I think that one of them. I actually don't remember what it is, but I think it's my LinkedIn profile background photo. <laughs> it, but it's it's basically like I think it's like the pillars of creation or something cool. else. I don't remember. But uh, speaking of the James Webb Telescope, so something hit it. Yeah. Right. Or something mal- caused it to malfunction. And let me see. I see an acronym here. Go up a little bit, Nathaniel. Here it's down here. It's the. So was that space de- debris or did something just debris? The near jostle. infrared imager and slitless spectrograph. Yeah, the N I R I S S. Neris. Um, we need to make be- better acronyms for our <laughs> rocket. <laughs> I thought we did pretty good. But it says right here that the there was an experienced communication delay within the instrument, and it caused its flight software to time out. So therefore, the instrument is currently unavailable for science observations while NASA and Canadian Space Agency work together to d- determine and correct the root cause of the delay. Well, I hope everything's all right on it, because like I mentioned, we certainly can't go up and fix it. 
We need that wallpaper generator. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it is, among other things. It is essentially a wallpaper generator. No, I'm just kidding. Because of that, spe- I'm pretty sure because of that, that uh, it does like some spectroscopy based on the like the readings from the infrared mm-hmm. uh, images it can take. And it basically means that it can analyze the atmosphere of different planets from a distance, which is pretty cool. That's pretty wild. I, I think I, I there's don't, a lot of cool stuff you can do from that. You know, they uh, check for bioscience with that. I'm sure that they they probably I don't think it's that powerful, but I'm sure they can start to try to do that in coming years because no, they're doing bioscience now. How how do they do that though? So we're <laughs> get ready. You're gonna learn a thing. So the gases that make up our atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Uh, when light passes through them, it produces a spectrum of colors that is very specific to that sort of atmosphere. Mm-hmm. So when a planet passes its sun, we can see what's in their atmosphere based off of the, the spectrum of light that is, it's giving off. Mm-hmm. So I believe that's called an ocu- oculation. Is it? When a planet causes something, yeah. Planetary oculation. Yeah, they, so they do, we'll and just, it's called like planetary lensing when they go over a sun too or so a star. There's a there's a couple different. They're amateur uh, people with telescopes and professional observatories that basically just pick a portion of this the night sky mm-hmm. and watch it. Sit and they'll there. watch it. Yep. And they'll sit there and watch it and they'll watch it and they'll watch it and they'll send that data out. And then eventually, someone gets around to analyzing that sort of data, and we can figure out what sort of planets are orbiting that star based off of the shadows and the lights given off that get pinged through that planet's atmosphere. Hmm. So methane has a different color. Oxygen, nitrogen also has a certain color. All those colors, we can identify what's in that atmosphere. I'm sure that because it's... Because that's a seeing those oculations, you need like super powerful telescopes. So I'm sure that they're working on getting that down, but I don't know if they have it like perfect yet. They probably don't have it perfect. They, they but can I've probably seen... get like the the atmospheric composition, but I don't think they can see like if something's like alive on there. No, no, not like alive, alive. Oh, because you said like biosign. So the article that I was reading, they said biosigns like, oh, this is a nitrogen rich atmosphere. I see that sort of thing, or oh, this has all the precursors that Earth the precursors had. of life. That Chon. (laughs) Carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen. You know, those things. (laughs) So they're like, hey, this looks like us. Oh, wait, that me. (laughs) Yeah. You know, Um, that's really interesting. So when you see those uh, articles or documentaries of, hey, we think this is a viable planet for us, it's probably based off of that sort of analysis. You know, that's one thing that people always forget to talk about is they say like, oh, the atmosphere, it's like in the perfect spot. And then like... The planet is like four times bigger than Earth, oh, and they, yeah, they yeah. don't think about the gravity when it comes to that. Like we don't even know the density of these things half the time. But just imagine like weighing four times as much as you do now and trying to walk around, pulling four G's all the time. Yeah, pouring, <laughs> pulling four G's all the time. Or like you know they think about a planet that's that's smaller and they don't think about how like weak that makes your bones too. I I love so like talking about exoplanets is one of my favorite things and. I'm going to I'm going to share a, a word that you guys you guys could have heard before but maybe not. Extragalactic planets. Yeah? You know what that means, I'm assuming? Me? Yeah. I'm talking about both of you. I'm uh, going to know what it means in sci-fi. <laughs> it, it means it means planets outside of our galaxy. Because, you know, th- this this might be mind-blowing for a lot of people that are listening. 
all the planets we usually talk about are within our our galaxy, within the Milky Way. So an extra galactic planet is something that does not exist in our galaxy. So like think about the Andromeda galaxy. I'm trying to remember how far away it is. I think it's like 250 million light years away. Nathaniel's going to fact check me, I'm sure. The Andromeda galaxy, and that's the closest like galaxy to us. Let me see. Let's see if I was right. Andromeda galaxy. Radius. 2.537 million. million light years Dang away. It. I added a z- I added too many zeros. <laughs> so 2.5 million light years, but that's still like 2.5 million times 6 trillion, which will give you the, the, the amount of miles to get there, which is a lot, I think, yeah. in my mind. That, I can't do that lot. math off the top of my head. So, But yeah, so, so it's like these planets, like it's rare. I think that they have like one of the first few confirmed cases a few years ago of the first detection of an extragalactic planet in the Andromeda galaxy. That's huge. And then you think about exo moon detection because think mm-hmm. about that extragalactic planet having a moon on it but it's like way smaller than the planet so you can't even see it it's like you know mind blowing it's like this kind of it's like this distance like the the number of things that exist outside of like people can't okay people can't think i'm getting i'm <laughs> i'm getting hyped up now people people usually can't think outside of like their own like city, right? Mm-hmm. There's people that can't think outside their own state, their own country, their own continent, their own planet, which is usually where people will max out around here. Mm-hmm. And then people people start to think like, hey, but what like the solar system? And then you think outside the solar system, you hit like your local cluster, and then outside your local cluster, you hit like your galaxy, and outside your galaxy, you hit your local like super cluster with the <laughs> other galaxies. And then outside of those, you think about, like, the massive galaxy clusters that you see in, like, the the Hubble Deep Field Telescope. And even those are light years apart. And then you just, it it keeps expanding. It's, like, it's vastly exponential. And it's so fascinating to me, too, because it's, like, you know, from our perspective, you could look up at the sky and you see a star and you go, wow, that's tiny. But you get, you know, a million miles closer, still tiny. You get a billion miles closer, Still tiny. And then finally you get up like, you know, say like the Earth's distance from the star. And it could be like, you know, a thousand to like a million times bigger than our sun. And you're like, okay, maybe it's not so small. <laughs> or, you know, it, it's just like the scale of the scale of the universe is, is absolutely vast. It's impressive. And it's kind of funny to me when people like, when people don't think about it like that. They don't think outside of like, like, hang on a second. Like maybe my... Maybe my my problems, maybe my head isn't as big as I think it is. Like, maybe my problems aren't as bad. Like, maybe I'm a part of, like, this bigger universe. Maybe I should just take a step back. Maybe look at the stars, you know? Mm-hmm. I find that that helps me. Everything's relative. Everything is relative, especially general relativity. <laughs> <laughs> so, sorry you, about that rant. No, I, I no, think it's I, I always interesting. Um, I did have a question. Do you think we'll ever... Maybe not in our lifetime, but as a species, ever mm. get to oh. another galaxy? Oh, that's, you know, <laughs> that is a great question. Or It's a very hard... Probably we're going to like get to Mars, you know, maybe within our own lifetime. Yeah. Maybe in the next... I think that that's know, possible. That's like something that just you have to think about at some point in your your engineering degree or like your, your life pretty much is there's going to be these advancements that you're not going to be able to witness... Because well, it's outside of your timeline. Yeah, yeah. technology's moving so fast now. You know, right. hundred years ago, plane or rockets were 
inconceivable, you know, right. things like that. hundred years before that, planes weren't even a thing. What's, who's to say what's going to happen in another hundred years? So I'll give you my, my, my answer. It might be kind of a cop-out. Because, well, I'm going to give you the answer, and then I'll give you the cop-out answer. I would say no, only because the nearest star to us is Proxima Centauri A and B, and they are four light years away. And, you know, obviously I'm not knowledgeable of top secret, you know, propulsion technology. But <laughs> last time I checked and looked into this, it was like the fastest that we can go, it, it would still take us like 10,000 years to get to Proxima Centauri B if we flew that same speed the entire way there. And that's not even considering slowing down halfway there, you know, mm-hmm. so that we, so don't, we don't just, just smack so into it or miss. Or burning up your engine. Yeah. Because, you know, I would say no, because, again, that's four light years. The Andromeda Galaxy is 2.5 million, and that's the closest one. What uh, propulsion but is this based off? My my cop-out is, um, my cop-out is that since they always talk about, like, these theoretical technologies that, you know, like, oh, you can, you know, they just, it's it's so funny to me how it seems, like, so easy. It's like, oh, yeah, just bend space-time in the front, and then, <laughs> you know, and then squish it in the back, and, you know, it'll just make you go faster than the speed of light without breaking the laws of physics. You know, it's just that easy. Or just crump it, get a toothpick, poke yeah, through poke it. poke it through it, just yeah. like Interstellar. And uh, you think about it like that, and you're like, oh, it's just that easy. But, you know, they always talk about doing this kind of stuff, but unless there's, like, a, a massive breakthrough like that, it won't happen ever, in my opinion. Because, like, we can hardly get out of our solar system. That's what I would worry about first. Because, like, Voyager 1, yeah, I follow Voyager 1 on Twitter. <laughs> Every once in a while, it'll mention that it's, like, like 24 light days outside of the solar system. And it launched in, like, the late or early 70s, sometime like that, Voyager mm-hmm. 1. And it, like, just, just got out of the heliosphere, which is, like, the, the sun's atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And I think that... I think that that is the measurement that they base that off of. Because that's going like six times faster than a bullet. I think it's going like 12,000 miles per hour. <laughs> yeah, Voyager 1, 1977, September 5th. Yeah, late 70s. Yeah, and it's going, how fast is that? Max speed? 38,210 miles per hour. What uh, what propulsion technology is it using? Uh, I don't know. I know it has an RTG on it, which is a radio radioisotope thermic generator. It's decaying... Uh, Decaying nuclear waste, thermoelectric generator. That's pretty close. Convert electricity, the right. heat generated by the radioactive <laughs> decay of plutonium two thirty eight. Yep, plutonium. Hey, yeah, that could, brings back to nuclear energy. <laughs> that brings yeah, back to uh, the 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 Boeing. What was that from the seven forty seven? Yeah, the seven forty seven. What they what, used what, depleted what part, uranium. What was the part though? Hmm? What was the part it was for? In the wing. It was in the wing for mass dampening. That, yeah, that's what it was, the mass dampener. Only like that's uranium. using for power. Yeah. Because that's still pinging. I mean, theoretically, that won't... If, for people that don't know, like, uh, radioactive decay occurs in half-lives. And the half-life, I don't. again, off the top of my head, I don't know, for plutonium-238... Yeah, you look it up. So half-lives essentially say, like... So say Kyle's half-life is 100 years. In 100 years, Kyle will become half of the man that he was. And then in 100 years after that, he will be half of the half. And so essentially, so, you're always losing half, and so it'll never go away. Half-life of plutonium-238 is 87.7 years. So it'll be half its size. I don't know when it launched. Wait, it launched in 77, right? Yes. I can't do that quick math. So 23, 23, so 46. So we have 41 more years, just about. Hey, 
he's doing math. <laughs> forty-one to to. We're engineers, what? I swear. I said I said forty-one, right? Twenty-three, twenty-three, twenty-three to two thousand plus twenty-three. It's forty-six, eighty-one, eighty-one years. Yeah, see, it's forty-six years. Yes, or sorry, forty-one years is what I meant to say. So we have it has. 41 years before uh, it hits its half-life, and then it halves. And I don't remember how much they put in there. I don't keep I don't keep record of that kind of thing. <laughs> Probably more than that's redacted. Back then, they were uh, over-engineering, right? Yeah. Well, like, you want to hear something crazy about half-life? Look up the longest... I'm pretty sure it's some bismuth um, isotope. Longest half-life. I'm pretty sure it's, like, bismuth, like, 234 or something like that. 209. 209 and it's, like, bismuth. It's 20 billion billion years. <laughs> That's and, a made up and it becomes half, <laughs> yeah, a billion. It's a billion squared, <laughs> and that is ridiculous. I mean, and you know how they do this too is like how they determine it. I remember asking this once in my geology class. Is I think they sit there and they wait for like, <laughs> like even part of like an electron, are they part of like an atom to decay off? The part of something to decay off. I don't remember what it is decaying off. I'm sure it's like a neutron or a proton, but like they're just waiting and they like. Finally, when something comes off, they're like, oh, write that down. And then finally, when they do, it's like, all right, well, multiply that times the amount of time for it to lose half of it, and that's how long. And I'm sure when they determined that, they're like, my God. <laughs> bismuth, for reference, fun fact, bismuth is in Pepto-Bismol, hence the name and hence the color. It's neat. Science, ladies that nice pink. Yeah, I actually like the taste of Pepto-Bismol. Is that weird? Uh, I kind of do, too. Not going to lie. Really? What about I, you? I used to, and then I had a stomach bug a couple years ago, and I tried it, and I, yeah. I didn't. Does it taste like bubble gum? It doesn't yeah. taste like bubble gum. To me, it tastes a little bit like bubble gum. Same to me. That's why I like it. What does it taste like to you? I don't know. But my taste changes. It, it tastes like Pepto-Bismol. <laughs> as, a kid, as a kid, it always tasted like bubble gum to me, and then as an adult, it tastes like something else. Yeah, I don't and know I don't what like it tastes like to else. me. But it's interesting. You know, Voyager 1, we were just talking about it, besides the Pepto-Bismol talk, <laughs> uh, and besides the Half-Life talk. Uh, it, the uh, Voyager is super interesting, too. That used to be my favorite, like, space mission. It actually still might be. But the Voyager 1, I think Voyager 2 might have it as well. Voyager 2 is cool, but, I mean, Voyager 1 is kind of awesome, you know what I mean? I'm pretty sure Voyager 1 took the pale blue dot photo. Yeah, there it is. Yeah, actually. these are the Voyager 1 pic pictures. Well, I can see the pale blue dot photo down. No, nope. I'm sorry. I'm talking to Nathaniel, right? Oh, that one. Nope, that one. So Earth. So there's a famous photo called the pale blue dot, and Carl Sagan convinced NASA to turn Voyager 1 around as it was passing by, I think, Saturn. And as it passed by, it took the photo of Earth, and you can see Earth is this tiniest little speck in the stellar dust. Is that it right there? That is it right there. Have you ever have you ever seen that photo? I have. <laughs> that is us. Remember how I mentioned that people sometimes don't think beyond like their own city? Mm -hmm. That's us. That's the entirety of human existence. That's the entirety you know, of our planet's existence visible in that photo right there. I understand why they say pale blue dot, but when I hear pale blue dot, I think there's going to be a pale blue dot somewhere in here. Nope. It's that right there. Uh, that speck of just, dust on the screen is us. It's like someone's Parmesan cheese just got left, <laughs> on, the, <laughs> left on the photo. When I go to tell the Milky Way. When I go to take like a photo with like McDonald's fries fingers, <laughs> and I get some like salt on the lens. Yeah. But the Voyager one, first off, that photo is cool. But the Voyager had um, probably one of the more advanced attempts at like not summoning alien life, but contacting alien life. It has a gold disc on it, 
Um, the gold disc, uh, I'm trying to remember exactly. It has, it's kind of funny. So they always assume that aliens can do math the same way that we do. They assume that math is universal. And so there is a picture of uh, a man and a woman on there, like carved into this golden disc. And then there is coordinates, like stellar coordinates to that of Earth. You should look up the photo of the disc. I did not know that. Is that a good idea? Yeah, that's. I've always joked about that. I was like, <laughs> you know, is that is that good that we're telling if, them where we're at? What if they're not friendly? So, yeah, exactly. So there's stellar coordinates that tell, it's like supposed to like, uh, it's so hard to explain. I don't even know how they're supposed to navigate from anywhere. They're supposed to use like the stars to navigate um, like a uh, sextant mm-hmm. for like sailors. Because I'm pretty sure they had a sextant, like a, a space ste- sextant on the Apollo capsules. So they knew they were oriented, right? Yeah. Um, but And then there is also like, I think there's like, maybe I'm thinking of the Arecibo photo. Oh, the Voyager one was the one with the golden disc? Yeah, that's what I've been saying. Oh. <laughs> <Not> <laughs> Have you not been listening? <laughs> Well, I've been searching. <laughs> oh, I see. And so there's Voyager. also, there's like the sound of like uh, a number of people saying hello. Uh, a 12 in, minute montage of sounds. Oh yeah. It's just sounds of earth. And maybe. a 90 minute, 90 minutes of music. Yeah. So it's like, I think Beethoven is on there, but it's, it's super cool. You could play it like a disc. So assuming that aliens know how to use, you know, a record player. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, do you know so the, the science of record player? Yeah. It's just playing the vibrations and yeah. the grooves. So, so that photo on the the upper right is that the Voyager two one or the Voyager one? I might be able to find a better photo. Sorry, I'm trying to point out uh, the the things on Nathaniel's. Oh yeah, so there we go. So you see that expanse of like that explosion looking thing? Yes. That is uh, supposed to be the coordinates to Earth, I believe, if I remember correctly. So we're just getting. Back it's supposed into to say like it's supposed to say like these stars, these stars. It's a pulsar map. Oh, that's oh, what it's it is. Pulsar it's pulsars. Map. What? Because pulsars show up as like massive radio signals. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. And so you should be able to use those as like a navigational like uh, roadmap. That's really nice. Very interesting. It's, it's like such cool stuff like this that like you know it, it's not like to be honest he, the aliens will never find it right. <laughs> Again, and it was astronomer and astrophysicist Frank Drake. That designed the map. It's pretty cool. Carl Sagan, yep. And fellow astronomers, Carl Sagan. And, and then the artist-writer, Linda Salzman Sagan. Very cool starburst-like diagram. Pulsar map. Inter- I didn't know it shows it was the location a- of our sun relative to known pulsars. I didn't know it was called a pulsar map, but I knew that it was a map to us. Because those also are supposed to live for a very long time, so essentially they'll always be able to find us. Not considering the fact that the galaxy is also turning and... The, the galaxy is moving through, you know, space. Mm-hmm. But there's the Pulsar map, and then, yeah, it's like the Voyager 1, like, attempt to communicate. It's super cool. So, I have, I, oh, go ahead. So I was going to say, it says right here that uh, there's 14, 14 Pulsars to create a map with our sun at the center. Each Pulsar is connected to the sun by a solid line. The length of the line represents the Pulsar's approximate relative distance from the sun. That's amazing. Our horizontal da- uh, etched along each are uh, vertical and horizontal dashes that represent a binary number that can, in turn, be conver- See, it's like they assume that aliens can just do math. You know why we have <laughs> math based on 10? 10 fingers? We have 10 fingers well, and yeah. 10 toes. Red the Hail Mary yet. It's like, that. I mean, like, what if what if you have, like, tentacles? JJ, isn't JJ, JJ. What, have and you then, read the Hail Mary yet? What? The book I keep telling you to read. No, I haven't yet. Do aliens have, like, nine fingers? <laughs> okay, so, um, spoiler <laughs> nine alert. Nine fingers? You, uh, 
I'm gonna t- I'm gonna spoil the book for you. Okay. Hey, sp- spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. All right. You know, just skip like ten minutes ahead. So, he, so the pr- protagonist of the book, I'm not gonna tell you the what's going on. Runs into this alien who has the same problem that we're having on on Earth, and he develops this algorithm on how to communicate because he it doesn't communicate visually, it communicates subsonically. Mm-hmm. So everything's like echolocation and things like that. But it has six fingers, so everything's in degrees of six or twelve. Yeah. And every time he communicates, going, you know, we should round it to ten. No, 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 we should round it to twelve. Yeah. You know, and things like that. Um, and those instinctive, you know, I think five is a good number. No, 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 I think ten. Yeah. It, it, that's a solid number right there. That doesn't translate to other beings that have different number, uh, a different number of appendages. Yeah, exactly. But I wanted to get on the you know what if they're friendly point that we were kind of making so you know on earth we're the only animals that smile as a form of affection yeah like dogs or, or positive dogs are like get away well think of chimpanzees or mm-hmm. gorillas or anything else Wolves. If, you, if you bare your teeth mm-hmm. that's a form of aggression yeah humans go hey how's it going and yeah. you know everyone else in the animal kingdom is probably like what the hell are these guys doing yeah <laughs> um, <laughs> There was there was actually a sci-fi horror movie that I saw. Like, I can't remember what it was called, but it was they found like a microorganism in the war, in the in space, and they're studying it on the International Space Station. You might have seen it, um, and it had a different form of body language mm-hmm. than we did, and you know shenanigans ensue. Um, w- my question is. Do you think that's going to be a big problem? Do you think other intelligent life is going to have a very similar progression to us? Or is it going to be something entirely else? Is it going to be like some War of the Worlds thing where, you know, they don't even have lips or teeth or something? Take them out with the common cold. Yeah. Well, you know, tons of other things. Like, do do alien life, do you think it'll be a competition basis life? Or a uh, communion Evolution. Work together. A work together evolution. So, you know, that is a good question. I actually have talked, my dad and I talk about this kind of stuff a lot. I think that I, I, you know, he brought up the idea when I was younger that anything that comes to Earth is probably not going to be friendly. (laughs) You know what I mean? (laughs) Like, why would you not send like a message like, hey, we're on our way? You know, winky face. (laughs) <laughs> or what, what if they just don't know how to send the message back? Or the etiquette is entirely or different. What if, what if they send us a, a, a disc like this and we're just like, nice artwork? Like, <laughs> well, then why would you just show up at their planet? You know, well because they sent the disc. You pull saying up saying like, hey, we're gonna come check out your planet. We just want to, you know, have a friendly talk. Or and we we just, you know, I don't know, hang it up in the Smithsonian or something. Mm-hmm. And apparently that's a know. huge insult. I mean, you know, that's true. What, there's tons of things that could go wrong. Well, it's like my my exact point I mentioned. It's like. If it takes us 10,000 years to get to someplace, you know, and that's the fastest we can go, then obviously whatever is there with us has way more advanced technology. If they can get to it, if they can get a message from us and come back, because if we were to like beam a radio signal to Proxima Centauri B, it's going to take four years to get there and four years to get back. So if we're sending a message 70, 80 light years away, or, you know, like World War II radio messages are just beamed out into space, you know, and they're going to continue mm-hmm. forever. And 80 years later, when it or when it finally hits there, 80 years, and then 80 years later when they say, hey, we're on our way to, like, go blow up Earth, you know, you guys can, like, do this to, like, not, you know, to, you know, or not get blown up. There's also the, that, that thought, like, what if they sent the message, but their propulsion system is just so fast that they passed their message and got here? 
And then they'd have to be going faster than the speed of light. They're so advanced. They just bend space time. So, <laughs> but what if we're sending our message out and these people don't even like they're intelligent, but they're not they're still using, you know, wood and <laughs> they're building wooden spaceships. They're just like, you know, wooden carts and I, I, dirt roads. I think that anything that is coming to Earth is not going to be friendly. Not necessarily unfriendly, but they're not going to be here for friendly reasons. We're pretty unique on Earth with the resources that we need to survive. Most things are based off of carbon-based life forms, right? Like everything alive drinks water on Earth. Right. Because we're all like carbon-based, right? We all need like whatever's in water. All the good stuff. <laughs> yeah. I'm not a biologist. <laughs> I'm All the good stuff, you know, in water. But, you know, if things are carbon-based and not like silicon-based, like people have theorized that you can be, then they're probably going to need water too. A really horrible movie called um, Battle Los Angeles, oh. I think, is literally <laughs> about aliens coming to take the water from Earth. Because there's a universal water shortage or something? Well, think well, about, think yeah, think about, about like, if you can get to the point where you're like, human or like, say humanity is like, I mean, it's a positive feedback loop, right? Right, right, right. Like, the more people are born, the worse it gets for like yeah. resources on Earth. So, like, yeah. eventually, there's going to be nowhere else to go but, like, out. Exactly, and yes. as soon as you go out, then your problem kind of expands on, like, your vehicle to get there. So the faster you get there, obviously the problem isn't as big, but eventually you're going to run out of something. And water would probably be the... Because that's one that we need most as humans, right? Is water is, like, the universal constant when it and comes oxygen. to that. And oxygen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, some things, I don't think you... Like plants, carbon dioxide, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe living plants come and get us. <laughs> That'd plants be scary. versus zombies? Well, yeah. Would they even have a it's so, evolutionary system that we could so, recognize? So hard to theorize. It's so hard to theorize about that because a caterpillar turns into a butterfly. I would never see that coming, you know? <laughs> like, I wouldn't look whoa. at that and go, whoa. You know, I wouldn't expect that. <laughs> oh. Yeah, I would go, whoa. I'd go, what the heck is going on there? Tangent, did you see the experiment done on them where they remember everything from when they're a caterpillar into the butterfly? I did not see that. No. Which is crazy because they liquefy entirely. Yeah. They're they do just, some weird stuff. They're sentient mush. They're goop. Yeah. But they remember everything. They're goop with memories memory and feelings. Goop. So I wonder what they remember when they become goop. Ah, uh, we can look it up. I can't remember. But it was like a sense and smells like, oh, this flower has this food. Oh, they, they probably would, like, remember like, treats, you know, positive should, things. We should go to this flower because it's got the goodest goods. Mm -hmm. Well, things like that, you know. But I love if, watching uh, you spell, by the way. <laughs> he said, what do, what do caterpillars remember when they become goop? <laughs> what? Why do caterpillars turn into goop? Why Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Tons and tons of things. How does caterpillar turn into butterfly? But, you know, that also begs the question. Are they going to have, like, a, a gender system, or are they going to be asymptomatic? They could uh, be, they could, asexual, like, they you know, could, like, split, like, cells. Yeah. They could duplicate. They could be, like, starfish. They could know? be a hive mind. Yeah, they could be a hive mind. That, that's why it's so, it's, there's, like, if we even look at life on Earth as an example of, like, how an alien species could look, because I feel like that's a pretty fair assessment, right? Like, there's only so many certain places that things can live if they're like us, where they breathe oxygen and they eat and they drink water. It's like, there's only a certain number of ways they can look. And then, like, the variables come in from, like, planet size, like, atmospheric, like, consistency, mm -hmm. and then, like, resources on the planet and stuff like that. So, like, if you look at Earth, like, excuse me. So, like, say, like, fish people. 
you know, say like, <laughs> fish, oh my. say like fish people, aliens, like obviously they're going to probably look like fish, right? They have gills, like breathe underwater, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It's like we kind of can expect that to, to be a, like something. It, it's like related to Earth. Like because if you saw something like that, you know, or something that has like tentacles, it'd be like, oh, it's kind of like a squid, you know, like evolutionary wise, like there's a reason why they look like that. Right, right, right. So it's like. That's how, like, all the animals on Earth worked. So that's had to have come from adaptation and something like that. Mm-hmm. And it's like you can't survive, like, well, some things can survive in, like, the middle of a volcano. You know, like, there's certain snails that have, like, iron-like shells or something like that where they can live, like, on the sides, you know, nearby. But that's not like... like you're just talking about a Pokemon. That's, yeah, kind of. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, that's not a commonality, right? Use like, flamethrower. <laughs> yeah, use flamethrower. Or space but, cows. Space cows, yeah, exactly. They're big green, Space and they, they squirt out Nickelodeon slime. Oh. <laughs> so, but yeah, it, it's aliens. Like, again, aliens is another one that I'm like, it like triggers like my, my brain sensor. Where I'm like, mm, yeah, I like this. Because <laughs> the, the Arecibo the telescope, um, I believe it's so sad. I think during 2020 it broke. Do you know what the Arecibo is? I think is I think you could pronounce it Arecibo. It was in uh, Puerto Rico, I think, or Costa Rica. I think Puerto Rico. Uh, then no, I have no idea what. No, it no, is. no, you're you're spelling it. A R A R C E I E B O. No, I B O. Arecibo, Puerto Rico. Okay, good. So it broke in 2020, I believe. But it's currently closed. Yeah, it what was, was at 9 a.m. It, it used to be one of the <laughs> largest telescopes in the world, and it was just sitting there, like in the ground. It's and a 12 meter radio telescope. Yeah, massive. 118 acres. And so click on that Wikipedia article because there's going to be something in there I'm going to talk about. So it's massive. And at a certain point, I, again, I, I, this one I don't remember, but there is the, let's see if I even remember the acronym for this. Uh, something for search for extraterrestrial. The search for extraterrestrial intelligence. SETI. Okay, so SETI is the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. And a lot of that was pushed by Carl Sagan uh, out of this telescope and others like the Very Large Array and all that. Actually, the movie Contact, if you've ever seen that with Jodie Foster and Matthew McConaughey, has this uh, telescope in it. And so basically, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence uh, involves exactly what it implies. And they used this telescope at one point in, again, it's like a range. I don't remember exactly. It's like from the 70s up to like the 80s. They used it to send a message to the Vega star system, which is like 21,000 light years away. But they sent an encoded message, and on this Wikipedia page, Nathaniel's going to find it if he keeps going down. It's called the Arecibo message. Um, and I believe the message they sent was called the Message to Extraterrestrial Intelligence, or METI. I found it. So he found the image. So, And if you look at it, so click on that. No, the, just the picture. I'll click on the so picture. you can see there is an image of a man, You're right. and then an image of a radio wave and it beaming out. And then if you look below the man, that is the sun and Earth and Mars, Venus. You see that? The sun is the big three by three square, and then next to it is Mercury, Venus, and then the one raised up below the guy's legs. That's oh, yeah. Earth. It's that's saying Earth. it's saying oh, this is, that's where we're at. It's saying this is us. And man, then, Earth, Sun, and what's this? I think it's a satellite. satellite? Yeah. And then what, what is this over here on the right? I don't, I don't know all of them. It's probably the moon, though. And then if you look at the very top, I believe that is displaying, uh, like, binaries from 1 to 10, saying wow. exactly what we were talking about earlier, saying, like, hey, we have, you know, 10. And if you if you read deeper into this article, it'll explain what each of the things are. I mean, I wonder, like, imagine some other 
smart life form out there just receiving this. Maybe they're even colorblind. Well, it wasn't well, co- it wasn't colored. Oh, well, I wouldn't even know what to do with this if, yeah. I, if I just like got this in the mail and I'm like, uh, but you know, one of my favorite that like this this pattern you've never seen this you've never seen this in nature, right? No, like, never. Yeah, if I, I know it's from somewhere else. If like, like if it came to my planet and like I wasn't like imagine I didn't know about this and it just appeared somewhere in the middle of the field and I'm like, huh. <laughs> oh. Yeah, Ten thousand exactly. years later, we get to another planet. They're like worshiping it. Like, <laughs> what? I think they sent it to Vega, the Vega system. Maybe I'm just thinking of Contact too much. Oh, Messier. That's what it is in '74. Um, so basically, it's like this system where they sent it to this. Like, oh, okay. It shows hydrogen, carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, and phosphorus, which make up the deoxyribonucleic acid DNA. So that's in purple. So yeah, it shows all of the numbers one to ten, white, all that. Very cool. Human genome. That's what the that is. DNA yeah. structure. Mm-hmm. That's what the blue and white. Uh, and so basically, like, they sent this message out. And again, they sent it to a place 25,000 light years away. And again, for those of you that don't know how that works, it's going to take 25,000 years to get there because radio waves travel at light speed or very close to it. And then it's going to take 25,000 years to get a response back if anything's even there and can, you know, decode this scrambled mess. And it also it's coming in in binary binary. Like, look at it. That's not decoded. Look, that one on the right, that it comes oh, in as what that. The? Yeah, because so, yeah, exactly. It's like you wouldn't be able to, like, notice. And there's be even more. Oh, yeah. If you'd I be like, found huh? this on the ground. Just what? You know that. Uh, that deep space radio signal that we found. Like 20 years ago. Oh, the wow signal? Yeah, the wow signal. What was that? That was some other alien to us. Well, you see, they, they always talk about this. Uh, this was a while back in 77, I think. So the wow signal essentially was like, I think that they determined that they can't, they haven't been able to explain it, but it was on like a certain like super narrow band of radio signal where they, they got to have like, they got to, they like, something happened that shouldn't have been there. Mm-hmm. And I think they determined it was from like a magnetar or a pulsar, but uh, I honestly don't know. Maybe it's the government hiding it from us. <laughs> no, I don't know. They, uh, it's it was something that was pretty amazing that uh, they they see this stuff like now they see it more and they're kind of like always assume that it's like a magnetar or a pulsar or something just because of the amount of radio waves that get spun off of them. Um, mm. Or actually, I think it may have been a gamma ray burst too. I mean, since huh. I, I mentioned, I've mentioned those a few times, but the wow signal is another cool example of like, you know, maybe it's maybe it's not something we can explain. Maybe it, it literally is just something that is out there that's sending us a message, or maybe it's you know on complete accident, right? Like maybe it's like us, like sending out like we've been sending out radio signals since like the '40s because that's when radio first started, and maybe it's. Something like that, where it accidentally leaked out of their planet, and eventually it reached us, you know, a few thousand or million years later. You know, critiquing our radios. Yeah, I'm sure they are. (laughs) I'm sure they were really horrible when the (laughs) when it was in the 40s. What are you guys talking about? So, if we're finding radio waves out there, kind of like going back to what you're saying, there's definitely someone out there. It's not like well, it's like things like have radio waves, even though they're not like like. Uh, like magnetars I'm pretty sure throw off like mad radio waves you know it's not like it's like things things just send off radio waves in general right 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 but but yes it could be 
depending on like the band of like radio wave, yeah. like the frequency that you're getting it at, it could be more, more so. Uh, it's more likely because like they expect it within a certain band for like natural means, like stellar origin. And then there's like the smaller band ones, which I'm pretty sure are like more, they're harder to like get naturally. And then they start to look at those like, oh, wait a second. This looks interesting. I like this little bit. So what we did to increase the probability that any extraterrestrial recipients would recognize the signal as an intentional communication from another intelligent life form, we uh, basically took that uh, repeating sequence and then beamed it on a transmitter at 20 times the most powerful communication radio transmitter. Wait, did we do a response? Because we received the wow signal. Did we send something back then? It seems like we... Took that same signal and then just see who understands it. <laughs> no, you. <laughs> Uno Before reverse times card. Four. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, it's like, it's like the, all this stuff. This aliens are kind of like well, not the whole reason, but like one of the biggest reasons why I've always stayed interested in space and why I want to go to Mars. It's one of the biggest reasons why I'm like, I'm so fascinated with it, right? Because like you can't, we can't be the only ones out there, right? Exactly. Oh, yeah. For those listening, we were kind of, uh, as we were setting up, we were talking about, oh, you know, yeah, if, here it comes. if you could go to Mars, would you? And uh, you guys want to give y'all's answer? Yes, I would definitely go to Mars if I had the chance. Uh, personally, I would probably go to Mars and then actually try to go to another planet further away. <laughs> Send me to Mars and leave me to die there. I'll do it. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm staying home. <laughs> I'll go to Mars, you know, and send me a postcard. Well, oh. And even just like experiencing that flight from here to Mars would be just phenomenal. You know, what would be the coolest thing is I would bring my telescope and I'd look at Earth. <laughs> I'm serious. Because it's like it's something you don't think about, right? Is like right. seeing Earth from like because I think that there's a there's a famous picture that I'm pretty sure Curiosity took where you can see well like. First off, you can see the sun from Mars, like in photos, and it's weird because the sun looks different and it's smaller, right? Right, right. And then there's pictures where Curiosity get or Perseverance, one of the two, gets photos of Earth from Mars, and it looks like a star. And you're like, whoa, because like we see we see Mars from Earth, but we have an atmosphere and all this other stuff on the way, and light pollution. Yeah. We don't have any of that over there, you know, just across the street at Mars. <laughs> and it's amazing, like, seeing these, like, seeing, and then, like, oh, this is cool, too. Like, seeing, like, different planets from different planets, like we were just talking about. But if you're, like, on uh, the moon, like, imagine looking at Jupiter from the moon. Or imagine being on Mars and looking at Jupiter. And looking at the rings? Yeah, because you would be, like, super close to, like, like comparatively, you'd be super close to Jupiter if you were just on Mars. I'm actually curious if there's any photos of Jupiter taken uh, on Mars. From Mars? Yeah, I don't know if any of the uh, I don't know if any of the, the rovers are like at a the latitude or longitude that allows it, but it would be super cool if they were. Man, having this computer here for you to Google things that I just spew out is kind of <laughs> nice. It's very convenient. It is very convenient. I don't have to Google anything. I don't or, wait, Earth and Jupiter viewed, viewed from Mars. Where? Up. Earth and Ju- as viewed from Mars, yeah. So The NASA link? Following I, our, I thought it Earth. Never mind. Following our previous conversation, how do you think? Do you think Mars is going to be habitable without a habitat anytime Earth in the I'm next that's thousand cool. years? Jupiter? What was that? Sorry, sorry. Uh, do you think 
we can make Mars habitable without a habitat no. within like the next thousand years. Because I was watching barely made Earth of... habitable within a thousand years. <laughs> uh, I was watching one of the uh, interviews with uh, Elon Musk and the SpaceX and stuff like that, and he mentioned nuking the poles to warm everything up. I'm trying to remember. To melt the... I can't remember which podcast it was or if it was like an interview or just something. Uh, but he mentioned nuking the poles and would that work? Would that I'm I'm trying to remember I'm pretty sure Michio Kaku is the one that originally put the <laughs> idea forth and then Elon Musk was like, Oh yeah, that is a good idea and then he started pushing it more. I think that <laughs> it would certainly do it would do things. I don't know if it, <laughs> it would do, do the things. right things. It would certainly melt things or just vaporize things. But it would introduce terraforming is like not to cut you off, terraforming is like a massive, like it's something that we have never done. It's like such a massive undertaking that we don't even know if it would work, you know, because like, first off, there's like, we think that the core of Mars is dead. So there's like no magnetosphere. So like a lot of like high intensity, like solar radiation from the sun, like just roast everyone. There's no atmosphere, you well, know. There is evidence oh, of riverbeds and stuff. So this water. Was. Was. There's it's locally... Lo I'm located sure, it all at the poles. I'm sure Australia had water in the middle of it <laughs> at one point, but it certainly doesn't anymore. The Sahara used to be a, a jungle. jungle. Exactly. It's like it used to, and like the core of Mars is dead. There's an atmosphere of like mostly carbon dioxide. It's super thin, and like there's no water, like liquid water, on it because it's too far away. No atmosphere. You know, compounding effects, and it's like it's like we'd have to somehow like artificially build the magnetosphere like are we gonna have ozone to protect our skin from like the ultraviolet radiation from the sun you know all this other stuff like oxygen to breathe like are we gonna be able to like grow plants enough like because soil eventually will degrade if you grow enough in it mm -hmm. and eventually you won't be able to grow enough and are we just gonna keep shipping soil from like earth and like well are we gonna try to like bioengineer a plant to be able to like breathe or like survive in the oxygenated environment or the unoxygenated environment of Mars and the cold? This is kind of a tangent, but could you imagine if uh the comet that hit Earth was actually just a nuke from another in in <laughs> like intelligent life form trying to make Earth a habitable planet? Trying to make mammoth and or here a we T Rex sticks. Doing it again with Mars. <laughs> well you, you actually that that's similar to an idea called planspermia or panspermia, which is the idea that um, Earth originally got like like life on it from a comet. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like it's like, and then it could have been from Mars. Because and then we're just going back. Yeah, because <laughs> Mars is Mars is long past its prime. Right. Mm -hmm. And you know it could it, theoretically it could have because meteors have hit mars and the the chip uh, off of mars has landed in antarctica on earth i didn't know that that's cool yeah there are antarctic or antarctic there are martian asteroids that have hit earth is that why we're not allowed on antarctica no we're just not allowed <laughs> on antarctica because it's super hard to get to it's the ice wall the pole of inac inaccessibility <laughs> I want to go to Antarctica, actually. That would be really cool to do, like, a, you know, a research thing down there. At least it's not rocket science. We go to Antarctica. That, too. Let's go to Scott at Munson Research Center. Hey, make some calls, Kyle. Actually, my <laughs> godfather used to be on a research vessel that went down to Antarctica, and he was there for, like, four months. I think that it would be so cool. Because my goal eventually in life, this is not really STEM-related. It kind of is. But my goal in life is to eventually step foot on every single continent. That would be really cool. I think that that would be amazing. And Antarctica is obviously the hardest one to get to. 
So it's like, you know, better start paddling. OSU can, <laughs> oh man, OSU can get people to Antarctica. Uh, I don't know how or through what program, but you can go there. I know that uh, we help with one of the research groups down there, and we'll send, I think it's three people down. And the cool part is One, that... Uh, two, three. The, the cool part, though, is like you go down for a bit, and you do this extraordinary research. I don't remember exactly what, but then you get a mission patch. Oh, and you hey. think, Yeah, you actually get to like keep it and put it on whatever you want, and I've seen a couple of mission patches. They look pretty cool. We should look into that. We do it for the bling. <laughs> we do it for the clout. Well, that's just like a side side thing that comes side along game. with the whole adventure. Well, I do know we need to do a couple of steps. One, uh, y'all buy need, a coat. <laughs> buy a coat. One, a good uh, coat. Two, you guys need to get your appendicitis removed. What? What? Oh, my appendix. Your oh, because you don't want the guy. Oh yeah, the not guy, appendicitis. The so, guy that uh, cut his own out. Yeah. So it turns out cool. your appendix can try to kill you at any moment at any given time for whatever reason without cause and it has not been it it is not uncommon for people to just drop dead in these far out places because uh, this happens so one of the regulations is before you even think about going down to antarctica is you need to have your appendix removed it's like not negotiable they won't let you have you heard this story uh, I have not. Actually. Okay, so I thought that you were bringing this up, which is why I said it earlier. This is a real photo. Uh, the viewers of, or the listeners, of course, will not be able to see this. This is a man who, again, this is a little gross, so maybe trigger warning here. Explicit. Yeah, explicit. <laughs> um, it is a man who got appendicitis in Antarctica, and he happened to be a surgeon, and so he said, you know what? A couple swigs of whiskey, and I'm cutting it out. And he did it, and he lived. Yeah. So he wow. that is probably this is probably the 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 cause of that having to get it out mm-hmm. because he uh, just snipped that sucker out himself. And that is a real photo of him doing it. Uh, his name. I actually had I saw his name. Um, if you're curious, Surgeon Leonid uh, Rogozov. Uh, this was in I wish that it said the time. Twenty seven years old at the time. It, I don't see a date. Where are you? Anyway, it was a long time ago, 1961. So yeah, get your get your appendix wow. cut out. Mm-hmm. So before Mars, before I know, probably should get that taken out. Probably get your gallbladder moved out. Just remove everything you don't need. Wisdom teeth, you know. <laughs> you guys don't have your one teeth kid, taken out one yet? kidney. <laughs> Just being back to tanks. Plasma. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> get some plasma removed. I mean, I mean, I already got my uh, appendix removed. I had appendicitis. Actually, it wasn't removed. It got so bad it um, burst. Oh yeah, my and, mom's uh, did that. So they did a, an ultrasound, and they're like, "Yeah, it's it's, it's a not boy." There. <laughs> uh, the, you don't have a appendix anymore. We're gonna have you cut mean? you open. No, they didn't have to cut me open. They gave me a ton of morphine and a lot of antibiotics. I was gonna say my mom hers exploded, and they had to. It was like gonna make her like septic, so they had to like cut everything open. Jeez, um, mine yeah. had been septic for like a week, so they're like, "Well, good lord, <laughs> I'm surprised you're alive." And you're still, um, yeah, I was gonna say, and you're still here. Well, I had like 106, 107 te- fever. Jeez. I think um, I'm pretty sure 105 is when you can like get, start to like lose brain cells. Like yeah, you're starting. I'm it's sure like that's cell, why it's I like have cell like, death. I stall sometimes, where I'm like, you know, what's, there's a word for this. 
We're getting a, we need to get like a, a medical student on the podcast with us. Honestly, Any of uh, the beavers out there that are in the medical field or studying medical sciences at all. Can you come give me a free checkup? Yeah. <laughs> uh, feel free to reach out to our social medias and get on the show. 109 is 109? the one that causes like cell death. I believe it's 104 or 5. You're supposed to be at the ER. Yeah, you're supposed to not be. Well, well he was at the ER. I was at the ER. So, <laughs> okay. funny story. Um, it was like finals week in my junior year, and I was trying to, you know, push through it. I thought it was like food poisoning. Of high and school or of college? Of high school. Oh, okay. And uh, I was going to take my German final, and Frau Kearney, who's awesome, by the way, shout out, uh, goes, hey, you don't look so good. You should go see the nurse. And then I woke up at the ER. <laughs> and that's what? that's my point of view of the uh, the events. So did you literally just pass out right there? I or apparently just... uh, they led me to the nurse's office. They called my mom. She took me to the, the uh, Bamsey, Bamsey Hospital. Mm-hmm. And uh, they were working on me and fixing me up. But I don't remember any of that. Dang, <laughs> that is wild. You just... So... So you gotta, like, you, you hey, tell you don't look so good. You tell wake up in the dude, ER. you teleported. <laughs> yeah, literally. Like, well, well, I was like really high off morphine, and I'm like, well, and it was uh, I was doing I was dealing with this for almost a month, and uh, two three weeks, um, and then it got really bad, and that's what happened. Uh, so the pain meds that they had me on was like the most relief I've had that entire time because it started from here. Um, where the the appendix is, and then spread across all the way to the other end, and then started moving up. And I couldn't eat or drink or sleep very well that entire time. Good Lord. You know, but I needed to do those finals. Talking, talking about you teleporting like that, <laughs> the, the closest I think that we can come to that, and this goes back to your question about getting to a different galaxy, like, ever as humans. The only Astro projection? What? That's not science, what are you brother. On? Okay. Never mind. That is not rocket yeah, science for sure. <laughs> I, thought, I thought that's what you were gonna say. At least it's not pseudoscience. <laughs> uh, no, the the closest I think we will ever get to teleporting like that is if they can ever figure out cryostasis and get a way to maintain it they, for a long period of time. I saw something on that. I don't know if you. I don't know if it has gained any traction. But would you like to hear it? Can you do it in? About approximately uh, four minutes and, and 18, 17 seconds? Perhaps. Okay. So uh, in the 90s, they were just studying two animals to do that. They were studying bears, and then they were studying those frogs that can be frozen. That's a very large size difference. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, for hibernation purposes. Mm-hmm. So bears, I don't know if you know this, can recycle all functions. So they their body recycles their urine waste all of that i did not so know nothing that. in hibernation is wasted and you know then they figured out bears don't do a total hibernation but they basically you know conk out for long long <laughs> periods of time but not as long as we thought they were uh but frogs go completely you know comatose comatose um their metabolic rate drops to near nothing so they're studying those two genes and they're trying to make a drug or some sort of um, genetic a bear frog treatment for humans, so that we can make those hiber hibernation trips. Man, wouldn't that be wild? That'd be crazy. Without you know us dying and falling apart. It's you know it's 
it's so weird to think about that bears do spend like several weeks just asleep. Just yeah, like and not just die. If I did that, you know. How long do bears live for then? I think they That's live for quite a long time. Longer than humans? Why don't you look it up? No, I don't think longer than humans, but they can live pretty long, I think. I, I'm going to guess I'm going to guess 60 years. Mm, 30. Wow, you were right. 20 really? to 30 years. Wow. I guess that makes sense. For the then. brown bear. For the brown bear. Yeah. What's the longest lived bear then? Look at us just using Google. We know some <laughs> things, I promise. This is definitely not rocket science. <laughs> 42, the answer of the... An American black bear. Debbie. That's the answer to the universe, too. The answer to everything. <laughs> 42, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Wow. Look at us. So we've gone on quite an adventure this podcast. We've talked about our critical design review. We've talked about going to Alabama. We've talked about James Webb. We've talked about Gary, the Pulse Doc, Maps, Doctor Albertani, Pulse Maps, Voyager One, like aliens, like different galaxies. James Webb, James Webb, what a trip! And Hubble, what a trip this has been. <laughs> and but, bears and frogs, and yeah, and the bear frog, <laughs> the bear frog. And ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, people of all ages, I think that it is time that we come to a close for the podcast for today. So remember, at least it's not rocket science. At least it's not rocket science. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everyone. Have a good night, and thank you so much for listening. Bye.